episode 63, Centron. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a September 10th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. gossip queens, and venereal diseases. That's what many Americans think of when they hear the name Centron. During the 1950s, this film studio, based in Lawrence, Kansas, became famous for producing classroom films that were designed to alter the behavior of America's rebellious youth. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a 16mm film camera used by Centron Studios to produce classics such as The Bully, Cheating, and Caring for Your Toys. Was Centron out to mold likable kids with good posture, or were they attempting to eradicate free thought and force conformity? Later, join us as we connect the Sage of Emporia, William Allen White, to the international man of mystery, Austin Powers. What does this 1960s mod James Bond satire have in common with a Pulitzer Prize winning editor from Emporia? You'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Centron. Hello, Nikayla. We're going to talk today about the subject of your last cool things, the Centron camera. Indeed. Um, why don't you first describe what the camera looks like? Um, the camera is a 1920s 16-millimeter Mitchell uh, film camera. It's, um, it's basically got two reels on top of it. It's got a pretty heavy um, camera box. Um, and it sits on a tripod of wood legs, and at the bottom of each leg, it's uh, a wheel rack, so it can be wheeled around. Um, it stands probably about four and a half, t- four and a half feet tall. It's really well known for its quality. This type of camera, this Mitchell 16 millimeter, was used by a lot of the industry, and it was used for years up until the 1960s and even later. So the camera was used by the Centron Corporation. What was Centron, and how is it connected to Kansas? Well, Centron, the name. Um, uh, Centron stands for uh, Central Electronics, and that's because it was a, a company that was developed by two college buddies that went to the University of Kansas, and it's a film studio, and it was located in Lawrence, Kansas, and they produced films throughout the 1950s, um, but they didn't produce really mainstream films. They kind of specialized in just about everything besides mainstream <laughs> films. Um, they specialized in producing what are called like um, industrial films in, uh, or industrial promotional films, industrial safety films and uh, they were one of the best at what they did. The company first started around 1947 um, when one of the founders, the two founders got together. Um, they grew up in Topeka. They went to school at KU. They wanted to become you know, great filmmakers, which they did in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, just maybe not the great feature film Hollywood filmmakers. And you don't really think of filmmaking happening in Kansas. No. Uh, no, but you'll see. And later we'll talk about it a little bit. It actually ended up being uh, for that 
niche market that they found, sort of the industrial and educational films, Kansas ended up being a pretty good location for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first film that they ever did uh, was the pioneering Sewing Simple Seams, Ooh. which is a, is a movie about uh, a sewing lesson. And they filmed it in uh, uh, a buddy's house in Lawrence. They had a good partnership with the University of Kansas, which was located right next to the original site of the film studio. They were like two blocks from one another. So they had a young pool of actors that this film studio could use. Um, so it worked out really well. And they also shot a lot of scenes around Lawrence. Around Lawrence, There was a lot of local support for the film company. So which is interesting, if you watch, a lot, if you watch the films produced by Centron, which, by the way, you can see a lot of them, on um, a website which, call, which is called Internet Archives. It's a lot of digital film archives. It's on the web. Um, and you can watch a lot of You can also see them on YouTube as well. You can watch a lot of them. And if you look closely and if you know the town of Lawrence well, you'll actually see some features from the town of Lawrence in the backgrounds of these films. So they used a lot of local talent, as in local local people, local kids working as actors. In fact, mm-hmm. some of the I talked to some people that even today remember being extras on these films that oh, Centron's cool. produced. Uh-huh. Um, particularly, I think there was one about bus safety mm-hmm. that involved a busload of kids in peril. Mm-hmm. Well, there's several kids that were like local kids hired to be extras, and they remember this particular bus scene. Um, so a lot of adults remember it today. Um, the company lasted until about the 1980s, and then that's when the work that it was doing, it, the educational film had petered out by that time, and the industrial film industry, it just the company just sort of started to slow down, and eventually it was sold and kind of rolled into KU's film school. Hmm. So they didn't become makers of the after-school special? No, um, although you could view that as a direct descendant of some of the yeah. work that they were doing. Hmm. Okay, so what topics did Centron address in its films? I know they're often referred to as mental hygiene films. Were they teaching kids how to clean their brains? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they, they weren't doing that. Um, Centron actually produced a variety of films. Like I was saying, um, promotional industrial films for companies like General Electric and John Deere. Um, basically, films that they would show, not necessarily commercials, but films that they would show to possible investors or to mm. at their big board meetings, films that would promote the company. Okay. They also produced a lot of safety films for people that worked at John Deere, worked at General Electric. They did local commercials, but what they were most successful at was like what you said. It was the mental hygiene genre. Um, And that was a genre that developed after World War II. It's a style of film that is intended to be shown in the classroom. And it dealt specifically with these heavy-hitting serious issues like table manners, (gasps) posture, dating etiquette, sexuality, which some of them did get very serious, sexuality, substance abuse, a whole variety of morality-related issues. And so, like I said, if you watch these films you can kind of begin to pick up certain elements of mass manipulation and encouraging conformity. That's basically what these films were trying to do. They evolved from the training of propaganda films of World War II. Um, Though there's elements of brainwashing in them, in their day these films were kind of considered to be the opposite of brainwashing, as in they a lot of the um, film industry had developed during World War II Um, And some, like Nazis, were using film for brainwashing. Americans were using this as a countermeasure to that, what Mm -hmm. they viewed at the time as a countermeasure. And they weren't trying to brainwash people. They were trying to provide guidance. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to make suggestions and encourage discussion. 
problem is, is if you watch it today, you don't necessarily walk away with that. Mm -hmm. Though that's what filmmakers in the time may have thought. You watch it now, and it's certainly there is elements of encouraging a specific standard of of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the process of production for these films. Um, typically, what you would see is a huge textbook company um, like McGraw Hill, which was a big textbook company in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. They were wanting to sell products to school, sell products to school. So they would con contact production companies like Centron and say, "Hey, can you make this film about about venereal diseases?" Oh my goodness! <laughs> because there was a market. Because the schools sure. were looking for these types of films, mm -hmm. um, and so Centron would sit down. They'd get their local talent, you know, writers from the Lawrence area. They'd write out a script. Um, they'd bring in their actors from the Lawrence area, and they'd film it all, and they'd, and they'd send it to film distributors who would sell it to schools. Like I said, there was other producers of this type of film, um, some being Cornette. Another one was Encyclopedia Britannica. They were companies that made these films. Cornette was probably the largest, and they made some of, they produced probably the most. Hmm. Centron didn't produce the most, but I think it's usually regarded as the best quality of these mental hygiene films. These films evolved from the propaganda films of World War II, and they developed after World War II because that was a period of a lot of social change. You had changes in gender roles, kind of increased mobility in society, and that was related to increased suburbanization. So you had a society that was really in flux, and there was a group of parents that were concerned that their kids were being impacted by this change. They were worried that they were raising a generation of delinquents. <laughs> <laughs> that there was all this immorality, and, um, and and these kids were vandals, and and they were just going crazy. A lot of that, I'm not sure where parents kind of got that idea. I don't know if it was that kids. I don't think it's because kids were necessarily um, more wild during that time period. I think it had a lot more to do with people were. It was a period of increased of increased conformity and conservatism, conservatism. Mm -hmm. It was perceived that kids were becoming more wild. So the best way to deal with this was parents looked to social science and new technologies to help resolve that problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the new technologies was film. And film could easily be shown in the classroom. And social scientists were developing ways to uh, iron these out. So that's how you have the creation of these mental hygiene films. And when you're talking about the flux after World War II, they also had the example of World War One, which everybody knew what teenagers turned into after World War One in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. You know, by those standards, they were out of control. And then, like you mentioned, the flux. You know, kids had a lot more free time during the war because dad was fighting and mom was working. Exactly. So, yeah, it would be a really difficult time. Why were films used instead of more traditional classroom media like textbooks or pamphlets? Um, a lot of it had to do with, uh, like I said, film was a burgeoning industry. Mm -hmm. um, it was really growing, and now it could be shown in classrooms. And it was just seen as a much more stimulating way to present information and education. In fact, there were some people that thought, that, thought of film as basically the next level in our education system, the next step. Um, Thomas Edison, even in 1930, 1913, he theorized that eventually all education would be done through film. Uh, some of the topics uh, addressed in the films, which you were just mentioning a few of them, are a bit risque by 1950s standards, and others were graphic even by modern standards, mm -hmm. like the car wreck films. Did you find any parental reactions or comments related to the films? And how did kids react? Um, were they effective? Did kids actually get something out of them? The, though the films 
are called moral or uh, mental hygiene and they deal with morality, it was sort of a, kind of a selective morality, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they would deal with some moral issues, but they weren't going to deal with the real hardcore moral issues. Like in the film Innocent Party, which is a film about a young man giving his girlfriend syphilis. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it talks all about the ramifications of syphilis and, uh, and the venereal disease. But, you know, it never actually clearly defines how this kid got mm -hmm. syphilis. It never talks about sex. Mm -hmm. So, in some ways, it would deal with issues, but it didn't really deal with some key controversial issues. Um, also, I think another reason parents didn't have a problem with these films is parents in these films were always depicted as sort of the wise heroes. Mm -hmm. The problems were never with the parents, and the parents were always a font of knowledge and could resolve <laughs> any problem. And not just parents, but adults in general. Every mm -hmm. adult had a helpful solution. Mm -hmm. um, so they provided expert expert guidance. And I think sometimes uh, parents really liked that about they loved the way they were depicted in films, which I think is interesting contrast to how we see parents depicted in film today. Mm -hmm. You know, often on in the television sitcom, it's the parent who is the goofy creates the problem mm -hmm. um, character. Interesting, too. They probably like the fact that the kids always follow their advice in the films. Certainly. These lovely, obedient children who <laughs> do exactly what they're told. Yes. The kids follow their advice to, like, a <laughs> to a point in finality. Like, if they don't, they're going to die. <laughs> Wait, what? You won't if you don't do what your parents say? <laughs> so, yeah, again, there was not much reaction then. But um, if you go to if you go to like Internet Archives now where people can post comments, there is some hilarious reaction <laughs> from people about these movies today. I mean, if, if people have any problems visualizing the type of film genres that we're talking about, um, if you're familiar with with the with the series Mystery Science Theater 3000, these films are almost always the subject of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 skew. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. So how did kids interpret these? Mm -hmm. um, the studios went to great lengths. Went to great lengths to make these very convincing, um, and 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 to make them relatable for children. I don't know. The generation of the '60s would indicate that the films were not that successful. They kind of did the opposite of yeah. what they were told. Yeah. yeah. So, in watching some of the films, which we've done, you know, we're calling it research, but they they are entertaining now. Uh, we did notice some interesting and sometimes downright hilarious manners of speech and gesturing. So, why is that? Were the child actors trained on the set of Leave It to Beaver? Because that's what it seems like. Um, like goofy speech? Do you mean like when they use words like "god"? <laughs> Golly, <laughs> gee, swell. I think that's interesting to note because it sort of represents how language changes. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds so foreign to us now, but these terms and these languages were actually used in the 1950s. Um, like I said, these filmmakers, they made an extremely, they made a good effort to be as accurate as they possibly could. If they were using language that was corny or cheesy, the students in the classrooms would just, yeah. it, the illusion of the film was would evaporate quickly and the kids weren't going to watch. Mm -hmm. So they had to be as authentic as possible. So you can you can be pretty sure that this was terminology that kids were using. I'm sure kids were using other color, more yeah. colorful <laughs> words, but these were at least some of them that they were using. So you're saying like by 1950 standards, what we'd be doing are, are not cool things articles, they'd be swell things swell articles. Swell things articles, exactly, <laughs> sure. Um, and you'll also notice that the kids often have um, they have accents, or it's interesting to note their absence of accent. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the benefits to having um, 
Centron's film studio in Kansas is that they could find these Kansas kids from around Lawrence who most people kind of have the opinion that there's not really a lot of accent to the way Kansans speak. It's very flat. It's very flat. Um, so a lot of the kids, it worked well because they sort of represented this general mass population and, and the kids spoke like about as average as an average American can speak. Hmm. All right. So what you've told us today has... Um, taught us that mental hygiene films were there to teach a moral lesson. And because history is our business, I think we should apply this to some significant historical events. So I'll give you an event, and you can tell me what moral Centron's, moral Centron style it taught us. All right. All right? All right. Okay, so we talked about the 20s a little bit before. Tell me uh, what moral lesson we would get from the 1929 stock market crash. Okay, so the 1929 stock market crash. Well, here's the deal. I am going to give you the moral lesson, but I am going to give it to you in a character's voice from these Centron films. Okay? Uh, okay. So, in my best... No, I don't want to do that. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, in my best... Frida was, the prim was one of the primary troublemakers in the uh, 1948 film, The Gossip. A classic. A Real classic. Life. A classic. <laughs> she is the Meryl Streep of Lawrence, and some people have said that she had an ice pick tongue. Mm. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give it to you in my best feat of voice. Well, <laughs> bankers are awfully swell, but they don't know everything. A fella ought to keep some money as gold bullion where the feds can't track it. <laughs> Frida, that's diabolical. <laughs> that's my Frida voice. And that's my lesson from the stock market crash. Oh, and here I thought it was going to be that excessive drinking and, and the easy ways of the flapper <laughs> cause economic decline and disaster. Well, that's, I'm not going to say that's not the real reason. <laughs> okay, so our next historical event is the sinking of the Titanic. And I have to tell you that another staff member, our registrar, suggested that the moral lesson of this one is always wear clean underwear, and in this case, maybe long ones. Because <laughs> the water was cold. Yeah, exactly. I'm tracking. Okay, well, um, along with, uh, along with uh, the child characters, there's often a sort of blank, stale narrator in most of these films. Um, so... I'm going to, and he talks to the characters, although the characters don't always hear him talking to them. Yes. Um, so, in my best mental hygiene narrator's voice, I'm going to give you the lesson from the sinking of the Titanic. Hey, Jimmy, I guess you learned a lesson today. If you're on a cruise, don't fiddle with that cork stuck in the wall of your, <laughs> of the wall of your suite. Nice. I think, you know, this museum thing doesn't work out. You might want to restart the Centron Corporation. I know, I could. <laughs> okay, and finally... The Battle of the Little Bighorn. Okay, in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, I'm going to use my highway safety voice. And this is a good way to wrap it up, actually, because the highway safety film is probably the last remnant of the mental hygiene films. Um, you'll still see these films used in high school driver ed programs today. They're not as severe as they may have gotten in the 1950s and 60s, because in the 1950s and 60s, they were awfully, incredibly graphic. Mm. A large portion of the footage actually came from people filming scenes of car accidents. The theory being that you can basically scare these kids into being good drivers. Um, so there's actually footage of people in peril and injured. Horrifying. Okay. And so, <laughs> on that light note, <laughs> I'm going to use my best highway safety video, my hi best highway safety voice, um, in telling you the moral lesson of the Battle of Little Bighorn. All right. 
Here we have a scene from the Territorial Montana Division of Federal Highway Safety. What you see before you is the Battle of Little Bighorn, where the forces of the Lakota Cheyenne collided with those of the 7th Cavalry. It's not a pretty sight, and its ramifications will be felt for years. Sadly, this could have been prevented, though, if General Custer would have signaled his right turn. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? He brought about his own downfall simply because he didn't stick his arm out. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that'll learn you, right? All right. Thanks for telling us about the camera and the Centron Corporation. You bet. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Good morning. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today, um, at the request of one of our listeners, we are attempting to connect William Allen White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, to Austin Powers, the fictional spy created by comedian Mike Myers. Uh, first, I'll just give a brief background on... Uh, on Austin Powers. If anybody out there hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> I haven't they, seen the movie. You haven't? There's like three movies. Uh, I've seen the first 15 minutes of the first one, and uh, that was enough for me. <laughs> yeah, you have to be in the right mood. Well, Sir Austin Powers, he is knighted, was created and portrayed by Mike Myers. Um, he was first seen in the 1997 film Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Um, Powers is a spy, and he works for the British Ministry of Defense. And, of course, his biggest threat and nemesis is Dr. Evil, which, oddly enough, also happens to be his brother. Spoiler. Which, oddly enough, are both played by <laughs> Mike Myers. <laughs> Powers was intended to uh, satirize the extravagant lifestyle of Ian Fleming's James Bond. Um, but what I've always thought is weird is that his apparel resembles that of a 1960s British modernist or mod, mm -hmm. which apparently has something to do with um, the actor that played James Bond uh, in, her, in Her Majesty's Secret Service. Apparently he wore a crushed velvet suit and beetle boots as well. Oh, I don't recall that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably just as well. Austin, I mean, Mike Myers and uh, Sean Connery do not resemble each other in their movies, these no. movies. Yeah. No. No. Well, Meyer's creation of this faux British icon is probably influenced by the fact that both of his parents, though Myers grew up in Canada, both of his parents were actually from Liverpool, England. Mm -hmm. His mom was in the Royal Air Force. Wow. I bet they were both really funny people, too. I would, I would say so. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, so we'll, we'll start with you. Can you connect William Alloway to Sir Austin Powers? Uh, yes, I can, but it's it's pretty feeble, and it involves a lot of sex. Sorry. Oh, well, that would keep him listening, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, as you referenced, Merle, uh, Dr. Evil is Austin Powers' brother and has a major role in these films. And in the first Austin Powers movie, he Dr. Evil considers blackmailing, excuse me, blackmailing the royal family of Great Britain by making it seem like Prince Charles had an affair outside of marriage. He's been cryogenic frozen for 30 years, so his staff tells him that has already happened, and he's pretty upset about that, but yeah, it was a great idea. So there's Prince Charles. His great-uncle in real life was Edward VIII, who abdicated the throne to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Very scandalous thing at the time. Wallace Simpson, while still married to her first husband, had an affair in China with Mussolini's future son-in-law and foreign minister. 
And she had an affair with his future son-in-law, and there's a biography of her that claims she had a botched abortion that resulted in her never being able to have children. That happened in China. Wow. Okay. um, Wallace Simpson. She got around. Um, And then Mussolini, another person who got around. Mussolini (laughs) was visited by William Allen White, as our listeners know, in 1933 Uh, when White was in Italy. Nice. Yeah. The old Italian connection. Yeah. Did you know that Wallace Simpson's first husband was a Kansan? No, I yeah, didn't. Apparently, know that. he grew up in Kansas. He was an alcoholic too, wasn't? Yeah, not they, not a good marriage. Yeah. I don't think they huh. got along so well. No, they lived. From what I can tell, they lived apart for a long time. Yeah. And of course, she had an affair with Mussolini's future son-in-law while she was married to him. So, not a happy marriage. Nice. So I think that's six degrees generously. Good enough. Good enough. Uh, Michaela, uh, can you uh, can you match the uh, debauchery of the first solution? <laughs> well, mine involves divorce, so mm-hmm. so not quite not quite as good in debauchery, I guess. Um, Austin Powers features Robert Wagner as a character number two. Before his big break, Wagner worked as Clark Gable's caddy, and Gable introduced Wagner to MGM casting. So you could kind of Ah. say that Gable gave Wagner his big break. Um, Clark Gable was briefly married to Sylvia Ashley, who was a British divorcee and the widow of Douglas Fairbanks. And as Uh we know, Douglas Fairbanks and William Allen White met in 1922. Uh So there you go. That's good. Nice, nice. Well, my solution, I actually uh, used Robert Wagner as well. Uh, Like you said, one of the characters from the Austin Powers series is number two, and he is played by Robert Wagner. Uh, though Robert Wagner had a kind of an exciting youth, and he was actually married to Natalie Wood a couple times, um, <laughs> later on he uh, he teamed up with Stephanie Powers to form the super rich investigation team in the television series Heart to Heart in the mm-hmm. 1980s. In 1965, Stephanie Powers was beaten and tortured by an elderly Tallulah Bankhead (laughs) in the horror thriller Die, Die, My Darling. And as we know, Bankhead was one of the um, founding members or significant member of the Algonquin Roundtable, which uh, many of these people were associates of William Allen White. Mm So there you go. I'm yeah. so glad we finally got a Psycho Bitty movie. In yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was a fun one. Thanks, listener, for yeah. um, making us go through you know the less literary side to find these connections to William Allen White. And no I, Teddy Roosevelt to be found. No, no. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, Rebecca, would you like to present the next challenge? Sure. In the next episode, we crank up the difficulty level. We want you to connect William Allen White to the lithium-ion battery. Yes, that's right. Uh, a battery. Developed by a chemist at Exxon in the 1970s, these batteries could revolutionize energy storage for the future. That sounds like a commercial. But like white, the batteries have a tendency to explode at the wrong time. What? So if you think you can connect uh, flammable batteries to a firebrand editor, send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 63, Centron. If you'd like to see images of this 16mm camera or watch a mental hygiene film, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. He threw caution to the wind to get the perfect shot. She hunted rhinos and became a fashion icon. They were Martin and Osa Johnson, the most famous wildlife adventure team of the early 20th century. 
In the next episode, assistant director Rebecca Martin examines a knife that belonged to this iconic couple. Did Oso wrestle the knife out of the hands of angry tribesmen in Borneo? You'll find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Hey.